Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. Alan, the last time I saw you on Zoom, your background was a snowy mountain scene, and I thought I was dreaming you were in Davos. (laughs) It was Davos. It was Davos, but just the Zoom background, I'm afraid. Ellen, as you know, for the last five years, we've assembled about 50 of the top CEOs in the world for a dinner on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Uh, This year, the forum was canceled due to the pandemic, but we decided to convene the CEOs anyway for a not Davos, not dinner virtual meeting. We got about 100 of them, and it was quite an event. Mm -hmm. We did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. The companies represented a total of about a trillion dollars in revenue, and they directly employ about 7 million people. So together, these CEOs definitely have the power to change the world. Sounds to me like they're planning on it, Alan. I was really impressed with the urgency and the earnestness and the generosity of spirit. We can talk a little bit about all of that in a, in a moment as we go on. But I think looking back on what I heard, what I heard was a group of CEOs who were deeply aligned around the idea that to build back better meant caring about people. I totally agree, Ellen. I think if you compare that to even one year ago, it's an indication of what we've been saying on this podcast o- over and over again, that something different is going on in the world of business. That's right. and, and I think we should share with our Leadership Next listeners what happened at the very top of this event, because we got some briefings on some of the most pressing issues of the moment, including the vaccine rollout from the CEOs who are leading the charge. All right, listeners, prepare to be inspired. Let's start with the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla. Now, where we are right now, I think pretty soon we will start seeing some real results from the vaccination efforts. Uh, But early findings from some of the countries that progressed well, like, for example, Israel, they are very encouraging. And I I would say they, they look transformational as to what they can do to the financial, economical, or health indexes of of a country. Now, the challenge is now to deliver the vaccine to as many people as possible around the world. And that's a very difficult thing because it's a highly coordinated effort with dozens of different governments, each of which has its own national plan and its own agenda. And uh, this effort, is becoming even more challenging given the significant political implications that the crisis of this magnitude creates. I think the fear among citizens create tensions to their political leadership and then create tensions between countries and uh, the voices as a result are getting louder. Suggestions that do not represent sound decisions are promoted sometimes. I'm very optimistic about our ability to control this pandemic And I'm afraid to paraphrase someone that uh, the only thing we should really fear is fear itself right now. A quick word, Albert, on the on the variants in uh, South Africa, Brazil, UK. There is. I'm sure that everybody is doing that. For Pfizer perspective, we have a very uh, comprehensive uh, network surveillance network right now. So all over the world, any new variants that uh, comes out 
we take it and we test it against our vaccines. Right now, for most of these variants, the results are terrific. For the South African one, we have seen, as Moderna also announced, a small drop in the immunogenicity, but we do not believe uh, that that affects uh, the performance of the vaccine against those variants. Yeah. But what we do know, it is that the likelihood that the variant that will escape the vaccine protection is likely to occur. So what I we are investing big time right now, it is in the surveillance network that will very rapidly identify when and if we have a problem, and then very rapidly create a booster vaccine that uh, will allow to cover these new variants as well. And when I say very rapidly, so it should be smooth. So people should be getting the new versions, like in your iPhone, you're getting a new version of our operating system. You should be able to get in that in case that is needed. So Alan, that was technical, but really reassuring. What did you think? Yeah, and, and look, Ellen, I don't think you can understate how dramatic the uh, accomplishment that the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer at the top of the list, made last year. They had never developed a vaccine in anything like that short of an amount of time. And the fact that he says they can quickly get out new versions to deal with variants is very, very encouraging. It has been a great year for science. It has indeed. And I really liked your conversation with Larry Merlo, CEO of CVS Health. Yeah, let's let's turn to that, because if Albert Bourla was responsible for developing the vaccine, Larry Merlo has a big responsibility for actually getting it into people's arms. That's right. To your point, you know, Albert has the front end of the solution. We have the back end in terms of access and administration into the arms of Americans. And look, we are uniquely positioned given our presence in communities across the country. Almost 80% of the you know, population lives within a few miles of one of our pharmacies. And if you look at what we've been able to do with testing as an example, you know, we've got about 5,000 testing sites and communities uh, across the country. We've administered more than 12 million COVID tests you know, many of those uh, over the last, you know, four to six months. Now, we've been working, you know, closely with the government at both uh, the federal and state levels. It underscores Albert's point about private-public partnerships, you know, have come to life in very meaningful ways during the pandemic, and we should never lose sight of that. We're one of two national vaccine providers into the long-term care pharmacy program. So think about skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, and through Wednesday of this week, we have been to over 28,000 of those facilities, and we've administered just over 2 million doses. You know, in late next week, we'll see the beginning of the federal pharmacy program, where we'll be operating vaccine clinics at select CVS pharmacies in 11 states. You'll see that, you know, open up across the country. There'll be limited quantities, you know, available, but there'll be more access points. And you know, we have built the capacity to administer up to 25 million vaccines a month, you know, in our retail pharmacies, so almost a million a day. The ability to reach that potential will be dependent, obviously, on the availability of the vaccine, the decisions that are made at each state in terms of the allocation, and then consumer adoption, which is going to be critically important, and then consumer selection of, you know, where they choose to have the vaccine provided. Best guess, if I can ask Larry, best guess sure. when we will get a vaccine in the arm of every American who wants one. You know, I do believe that there's optimism that by the time we get to, you know, the spring timeframe, 
there is now ample supply as we begin to move into the general population. And hopefully as we get to that June, July timeframe that, you know, we're reaching that point of a large number of the of Americans uh, vaccinated where we can begin to talk about herd immunity. Well, Larry's comments made me feel much more encouraged about the vaccine rollout and the likelihood that anybody in the U.S. who wants a vaccine will get one by early summer. I'm hopeful, too. I'm hopeful, too, particularly for the marginalized, underrepresented communities. We really need to see some of the disparities in health turning around with the vaccine. And this is an incredible opportunity to do that. So I'm remaining optimistic, too. And so moving on, next stop in our conversation was climate change. And it ended up being a really important conversation and everyone was basically on the same page. And Alan, that that pretty much aligns with what we've been seeing from the CEOs that we survey. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we found in the CEO survey we did in collaboration with Deloitte. What that survey showed for the first time is 60% of companies now have a plan for how they will reach net zero emissions by 2050. That's a big deal. A majority of the CEOs are really paying attention to this. So now we're going to hear from Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors. You know, when she joined us on Leadership Next last year, she made it clear that GM is really focused on an all-electric future. And she made such an impression on me that I actually test drove a Bolt. Really, the (laughs) whole family enjoyed it. So she hit that point again in this conversation. Let's take a listen. You know, I think we'll look back and see 21-22 as an inflection point that allowed us to start driving mass adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, General Motors, uh, we are committing $27 billion between 2020 and 2025 for investing in electric vehicles. And we understand to get broad adoption, we need to make sure we cross multiple price points and multiple segments. So that's exactly what we're doing. Because four years ago, we also started working intently on the technology to enable us to do that efficiently to make sure we can reach as many people as possible. We also just launched Bright Drop, which is a new business entity that allows us to serve commercial customers and very happy with our partnership with FedEx Express. So Ellen, then Mary made a really startling, really big announcement, which she delivered in her signature low-key way. I think the company had announced this to the press a, a few hours before our event, but it was certainly news to many people on our call. And I just want to highlight for our listeners that this move is potentially not just a game changer for the auto industry, but for business in general and how they approach climate change. Just today, we announced that our our plans are to be carbon neutral in our global products and operations by 2040, and that we're aspiring to eliminate tailpipe emissions from new light-duty vehicles by 2035, as well as we've committed to set science-based targets that align with the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, future as outlined in the Paris Accord. So you can up that percentage um, in the the survey that you spoke about earlier today. There's a tremendous amount of work and we have to work together, corporations, governments, provide the the charging infrastructure. But we're very enthused about the path we're on and the opportunity that we can have working with not only the U.S. government, but other governments to accelerate uh, EV adoption and really address climate change from a mobility perspective, whether we're moving people or goods. Now, she did underscore that this is an aspirational goal. And I suspect she won't still be CEO in 2035, so we won't be able to hold her 
personally accountable for whether they made it, but it is a big deal. You know, it really is a game changer, Alan. And she made that announcement with the same sort of low-key style as if she was ordering chicken instead of fish at an actual (laughs) Davos dinner. I really appreciate her low-key style. She absolutely has the the persistence and the vision and the wisdom to push these major changes through. I'm looking forward to reporting on that for a long time to come. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Mary showed up on our world's most admired company uh, survey this year at Fortune for being one of the most underrated CEOs. Satya Nadella got top honor, but Mary Barra uh, came next. So I think people are starting to pay attention and realize that there's something behind that low-key style. All right, stick around. We'll be right back with more Leadership Next. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. So the last briefing at our Davos or not Davos meeting came from Facebook Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg. So, Alan, tell me again, why did you want to talk to Cheryl about Internet regulation? You're joking, Ellen. (laughs) She's got a lot going on. Let's let's listen to what she had to say. To say there's a lot going on for the U.S. tech-based tech companies is maybe an understatement. (laughs) Uh, To say there's a lot of anger on both sides is maybe an understatement, definitely an understatement. And when you think about the regulatory environment, there's certainly going to be a lot of interest. There are, you know, obviously all the places we are and all the investigations and lawsuits on antitrust. And that is a process that has to go by the law. And I'm happy to talk about that if anyone wants to. But I think there's a bigger question on regulation that this community faces, which is what are the laws governing the Internet? And we're in a pretty interesting place. The laws governing the Internet were all put in place with some exceptions 20 years ago before data-driven services were what people did on the internet. And almost all of them are really out of date or non-existent. So when you think about, or or not really working in a global framework, privacy, privacy is really important. We need updated legislation. The US has California moving pretty quickly and most of the states behind and state level legislation is very difficult for companies as any of you can imagine. Europe had GDPR, we tried to roll that out globally and we did, but it's not really mandated anyway. So. The world coming together on a privacy framework 
would be very, I think, very important for consumers and very helpful. And then there's content legislation. Some of you may heard that Twitter and Facebook, we banned a president. And there is a lot of concern that we shouldn't have the power to do that. And we share that concern. You know, we've been calling for content regulation, legislation, guidelines, anything at a national or international level for a long time. And I think this experience makes it very clear how much that legislation is needed. And so we need this legislation. We need it in privacy. We need it on content. I also think election integrity, data portability, the rules governing the internet need to be rethought. And we're at the table working on that. The thing that we shouldn't take for granted as we come together as this group is what kind of internet are we going to have? Because in all of these countries, whether the laws are disparate, there's a pretty open internet, which is the internet that we are all used to. It's borderless. It's largely free. We use it every day. You may be concerned about privacy in your data, but none of these companies are handing your data over to countries. That's without, without valid subpoenas. There's another version of the internet, which is really the Chinese style internet where the government is a full partner, where it is completely controlled and regulated, and the government has access to all the data. And I think people don't really understand that there's a lot of countries in between moving more towards the Chinese model. You look at Russia, you look at Turkey, you look at Vietnam. A lot of countries are putting in place rules that create a less open internet or putting in place rules which fragment the internet. And the U.S. tech companies, because we've done so well, we exist under U.S. law. So no matter what laws you pass or even antitrust action you take, we are existing under the framework of the open Internet. And I believe and I think a lot of us believe that unless the international community and the CEOs. So this is a great forum for this, Alan. Thank you. Come together. We will wind up in a fragmented, bifurcated Internet that has far less privacy than even the worst situation you might find in one of the developed countries. All right, so there's a lot to digest in there. So we thought we'd bring our colleague, Mikhail Lefram into the conversation. Mikhail is a wonderful friend and a senior writer at Fortune and has lived in the heart of Silicon Valley for years and years and years and has reported on all things tech. She's also a fellow co-chair of Fortune's Most Powerful Women's Summit. Yeah, and before you go to Mahal, Ellen, I should point out that she's also co-host of another fantastic Fortune podcast, yes, Brainstorm, is. which focuses, as you might guess, on technology. So you can see why I'm so pleased to bring in our go-to expert on this. Mikhail, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you. Excited <laughs> to be on another Fortune podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. We're just going to live our lives on the audio waves. But I, we wanted to have you on so you can just give us a sense a reality check on what Cheryl's comments were. What hit your ear as you heard her say this? You know, I think for some people, it's still a surprise that Facebook is welcoming regulation and rules um, that are not imposed by themselves. But this has been a long time coming and they have said that they're open to it for a while, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want it in any or all forms. So I think that's really important to note. That Facebook is not, you know, Sheryl Sandberg is not saying, please come and whittle us down and, you know, cleave off WhatsApp or, you know, any of the <laughs> other acquisitions. That is not what's going on here. Well, and she mentions both antitrust and content regulation very specifically. And so what's the state of play there? What's coming? What's likely to come? And what, what would change actually look like? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is a rare area where there is bipartisan support for doing something. What that something looks like still isn't clear. Um, So late last year, the Federal Trade Commission um, filed a a lawsuit against Facebook, and this is really on the antitrust side. So this is a, a desire to potentially break Facebook down into into parts um, and again, you know, cleave off some of the acquisitions. The concern there is that it, it is a, a monopoly in the social media space. Um, and then there are a lot of efforts, and again, these are bipartisan, to just more closely regulate Facebook and other social media companies. And at the heart of these debates is really Section 230, which is this law that basically states that social media companies, that internet companies, period, are neutral platforms and that they cannot be held liable for the content that they publish. And so that is something that I think will very, very likely be rethought and reframed. And Mahal, what did you think about the fact that she turned her attention to the rest of the world at the end of her comment saying, hey, you know, whatever you do to us here in the U.S., you've got to pay attention to what's happening in China and in Russia and in Turkey and in India. Uh, they may be uh, moving towards a very different level of control of the Internet. Yeah, I think this is really telling for two reasons. The fact that she did uh, try to put a lot of focus on what's going on on a more global level. And and the first reason is is actually because whatever regulation Facebook is going to embrace or is pushing for currently, they're going to want it to be something that is, you know, in the United States, definitely on a federal level, not state by state, like we're seeing in California, and potentially, uh, you know, ideally for them, more global rules, because it is a big headache for a company like Facebook and for other companies to have to deal with, you know, these really fragmented regulations all across the globe. And then the other thing is China and is this other model that, you know, is really like 100% almost government run and censored. And I think that that's also really telling because as much as Facebook is, quote unquote, embracing uh, regulations that will, you know, at some point be imposed on them, they certainly don't want government to dictate everything that they're doing. And so she is, you know, quick and they are quick to point out that, hey, what kind of Internet do we want? Do you want to be told by the government, uh, you know, everything you can and can't post? versus by Facebook. (laughs) Well, it's going to be interesting. Michal, thank you so very much. And for everyone who's listening, after you finish this this episode, please go subscribe to Brainstorm. My second favorite podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. So, Ellen, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a big goal of this gathering was to figure out some specific priorities for business in the coming year. How can we work together as a group and how can we collaborate with government to really make the world a better place. We broke into working groups to discuss it, and those conversations were off the record, so we can't play them here. But everyone reported back to the group at the end, and I thought it was pretty interesting, the attitude of the businesses. Uh, Ellen, what was your take? So I've had time to reflect on all of this, Alan, and I have to say what was top of mind for me was the uniformity in response, CEO after CEO after CEO said something to the effect of, this is the time to think about building back better in a very big way. This means putting people first, assessing the needs of the most vulnerable folks, whether it's employees coming out of the pandemic, their health, their mental health, their well-being, their families, their communities, all of that they touch 
and that includes broader communities and countries who may not have the same access to resources and support coming out of the pandemic as other wealthier countries do. It really was a conversation about where does business fit in really into the broader ecosystem of stakeholder capitalism. Partnering with people, partnering with governments, really making the difference. Yeah, I agree, Ellen. Uh, uh, The CEOs want government to work, hasn't been working very well. And the CEOs want relief for the people who need it from the pandemic. They also focused on three particular issues that are worth highlighting. One we've already talked about, which is climate change. There's a sense that this is a turning point year for dealing with climate change. Second is infrastructure in the U.S., a feeling that that business and government should be working together to address infrastructure. And that includes things like making sure everyone has good broadband access. Uh, And then the third was education and worker training, which really focused on the point you were making, which is how do we reinstate mobility into society? How do we create alternative pathways for people to come out of disadvantaged situations and get good jobs in this rapidly evolving tech-driven economy? I expect we'll be talking about all of those in future episodes of Leadership Next, Ellen. In the meantime, thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 